Good morning, good morning. As you wrap up your conversations, I would love for you guys to actually stay standing. We're going to read the word of the Lord together before we get started. It's so good to see you guys. Welcome to Riverbend. Um, it's an amazing Sunday. I'm so happy to see you. Um, so this morning we are reading from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, and it says this. It says, now wherever you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to faithfully follow all that I have commanded you, and never forget that I am with you every day, even to the completion of this age. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. You can stay standing just for a second. I'm gonna pray, is that all right? You guys believe in that? I do, so we're gonna do that today. Um, take a moment, you can just slow down. What a time of worship, huh? Thank you, Danny and Elizabeth, for leading us. I personally very, like, very much like the girl that was leading. Um, she's my wife. It's fine. I can say that. Um, but what a time of worship. Thank you for leading us. And, and Holy Spirit, we just pause for a moment. And we just slow down to pay attention to what you might want to say. We hand this moment when we read the, your scripture, the power of it, the history, the prophetic nature. As we read your word, your word says that things happen in the heavenlies in the deepest parts of us that we don't even see. So we ask for that today. Would you speak to us where we're at? In the midst of trouble, in the midst of joy, in the midst of good, in the midst of bad, we ask that you'd meet us where we are. Speak to us, change us for your glory and our good. And everyone said joyfully as they sit down. Amen. Grab a seat, please. Well, uh, this is our last week in our series called Sharing the Gospel. Andrew was actually scheduled to teach, but he came down with something that rhymes with Bromacon, and uh, <laughs> he's not here. He also gave that wonderful gift to some other people on our staff. They're not here either. So uh, we have a light team today, but I just want to say thank you for coming and spending your Sunday with us. Andrew told me, he's like, hey, buddy, you're up just a couple days ago. So bear with me, all right? If this is bad, his fault, all right? Um, make sure to remind him of that. Uh, Matthew 28, that's where we're landing today. These were Jesus's famous last words, right? You've read the scriptures, and if you have, you know that this is something that Jesus was really stoked on and very, very passionate about, to help other people understand the way to live his life. Now, to back up uh, my own personal story, I grew up in Portland, and in my eighth grade year, I picked a very annoying habit called playing the drums. And my parents were incredibly patient with the cycle of punk rock bands that I continually started with friends in our garage. They were incredibly patient. Um, it was a passion. It was one of those things that I had kind of like this natural inclination towards. I never took lessons. I just hit things really hard and in consistent patterns. And things tended to work out. Like it just kept working out. And this eventually led to me as a 17-year-old uh, getting some offers to actually play in some legitimate spaces where people would give me money to play. Can you believe that? Like, people would give a 17-year-old money to play music. My parents were not crazy about me leaving school for this, but I decided I'm old enough, I'm going to make this decision because I have all that wisdom at 17. And so I decided to do this. So I was on these different insane tours, lots of people. I was living my dream of playing music for a living. And, and this landed me in this... Uh, circuit of sorts where 
when they would have these big evangelistic events, they would have certain bands play for them. And so I was one of their house drummers that would end up playing with, for these big events. And this was the model that if you were here last week, I referred to the big evangelistic events that have 25 to 30,000 people. And the point is to bring them in with like some band or some music and then tell two or 3% of, or tell 30K about Jesus, and hopefully two to three percent of those people will enter the kingdom and get saved. That was the model. Now, obviously, we've seen this model work, but over time, we've seen some of the effects dwindle, and we'll talk more on that later. But one particular story that was incredibly embarrassing, and I'm going to share it with you now because I feel like this is a safe space, is I remember uh, I was in Manado, Indonesia. Now, many of you have probably never heard of Manado. Neither had I. I just knew that I was supposed to be there on a certain date and time. And we were actually at one of these evangelistic festivals. And what was going on was there was this, there was a couple bands and the band that was supposed to start was this incredible gospel choir from Chicago. There was three members in the band. It was a keyboard player, a bass player, and a drummer. And they didn't need anything else. They were so incredibly skilled. I was watching them during sound check and my mind was just blown. I, I was incredibly impressed with how professional and out scaling everybody they were. And their job was to come in and like hype the crowd and get everybody amped. And I recognized very quickly like these musicians are in a whole class of their own. Like they are so gifted. So this crowd's forming, all this energy is starting to build, you can just imagine. And it's about two minutes before this band goes on. Uh, but all of a sudden their music director for this band comes and says, hey, we can't find our drummer. And so he looked around and someone had told him that their drummer had eaten something funky at an Indonesian street food cart and he was not going to be coming out of the bathroom anytime that day. <laughs> so everyone was scrambling. They're supposed to start. I'm just standing there waiting for our turn. And my worst nightmare began to ensue. This group of people who were like the stage producers start talking and trying to figure out how do we start this thing? Do we move things around? Whatever. And I keep seeing people look over at me. And I'm like, oh, no, don't do it. Don't do it. They keep looking over at me. And eventually, my worst fear came to fruition when they asked this little white boy from Portland to play in this gospel choir band, which I had no business playing in, and no practice ever. They just basically said, hey, could you play? And I was like, no, I can't. This is so, they're so good. I don't even know these songs. I've never even heard this. They're like, no, it's fine. So the musical director, as we're walking on stage, simply says, just follow me for the pushes. I was like, what are pushes? What are you talking about? I don't know your world. You're better than me. You're so much better than me. And so I sit down and I begin to embarrass myself thoroughly for a half hour, miss all the pushes, totally don't get it. And it was a great humbling experience in front of 25,000 people. Um, <laughs> Good thing it was a different country, very far away. I was so happy to get on the plane and leave and pretend I did not exist. It was a great, great day when I left that place. Um, and I decided really quickly I should not be a gospel drummer. Um, but you know what happened there, which was actually really fun, is that people were or introduced to the gospel. Now, I can recognize for a second that this is a silly story. But honestly, what was powerful about that night was not the gospel drumming. It was the message of Jesus. And people's lives were honestly changed. It was this beautiful good news. And it was in this space that people needed to hear it. And whether it's in a big evangelistic event or rather if it's one-on-one -on -one with your friend or the medium of alpha that we use here at Riverbend, it has power. Now, as I mentioned, we're in our last week of sharing the gospel 
series. And last week, if you missed it, I would encourage you to listen to it. We explained and touched on the medium that we are going to, as a church, share the gospel through, and that's Alpha. And we're really excited about that. There's a ton of content and material we can point you to if you have questions. But this is good news for our church. It's good news because we have a medium and it's effective when we see God moving through it. But there's another question that we have to deal with today, and that is you. That is me. What does this all mean for us? What does Matthew 28 actually mean for you and for me and how we interact with people, how we interact in our workspaces and all of that? Uh, we here at Riverbend are really passionate about spiritual formation. And that's simply, just to let me just simplify that for you, it is the process in which we become more like Jesus. That's what spiritual formation is. And one of the ways that we become more like Jesus is through spiritual disciplines. And you're going to hear this a lot from us because we see this as a practical way that we actually get to implement the teachings of Jesus into our life. So every single week you'll hear something about that because we are very passionate about the reality of making Jesus' life our life and emulating that life. And so the good news for us today is that sharing the gospel is actually a legitimate spiritual discipline that the Holy Spirit is really interested in helping you with and that you and I actually have a responsibility to grow in. A great author named Robert Mulholland suggests that spiritual formation is about being transformed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. And that's really important. That your spiritual formation, that your spiritual disciplines are not actually just for you alone. They are actually way, way broader than that. It's for everybody in the world, those close and those far. Keeping company with Jesus, he goes on to say, is not just a private spiritual act. It is the way that we share the life of God with others. So it's not just for you. It is for others. I don't know about you, though. There is a gnawing reality that I deal with on a very daily basis, and you do too. It's the thing that usually stops me from wanting to enter into spiritual disciplines or from sharing the good news of my life uh, with others about Jesus and how Jesus has transformed me. And that problem, as we're all aware of, is sin. It's sin in all of its side effects, right? Sin has a lot of side effects. Have you found, found that out? Like you do one thing, you're like eight other things you have to deal with because you did that one thing. We don't often feel like spiritual disciplines, like reading the scriptures, like praying with others or practicing the presence. That might not be a felt need. And the problem is that sin, as we all know in this space, it, it separates, it destroys. You've heard this before. It destroyed humanity's relationship with God. It destroys relationships. Some of you have experienced that very intimately. And it destroys us individually. Now, I know that all of you know this, but I think it's important to set the backdrop of the problem of why we have such a hard time entering into this beautiful and honestly very normal command to share our life with other people. Let me also just clear up one misconception about God or a few. Um, God is not a control freak. He's not like interested in just like coming into your life and controlling everything because he's got like control issues. Maybe your parent did. That's not God. He's also not the divine officer that's looking to say, I cannot wait till you mess up because I'm going to squash you. I cannot wait for you to mess up. No, in Ephesians, God describes himself as our heavenly father. He knows what's best for us. And we have to be honest about sin in general. Like there's this movement going now, like talking about the reality, like is sin even real? Is it even a problem? Is it even a real thing? I'm like, my goodness, you are disconnected from anybody outside of your very middle-class bubble. Yes, sin's a problem. And it's destroying our world and it's destroying us. And sometimes unwittingly, we don't even know. Uh, 1 John, 
1.8 gives us a little clarity around this. It says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But check this out. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just and he will forgive us. And not only forgive you, check this next word out, and purify you from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What a powerful, aren't you thankful for forgiveness? I don't know about you. I'm so thankful for forgiveness. As our heavenly father, right, he described himself as a father to us. He provided rules for us to live by because he knows what's best for us. I know this is elementary, but we need to hear it for a moment to help understand the importance of this truth that Jesus asks us to live into. He doesn't want us to be destroyed by sin, so he gives us a certain set of parameters. And if you're a parent, or if you have nieces and nephews, or if you were a child, you know what this is about. This is no different than you as a parent. I don't say to my youngest, Sloan, who's three, by the way, I don't say, hey, sweetheart, I don't want to encumber your self-expression or freedoms as a three-year-old, so if you want to set up your tea party in the middle of the street today, I guess that's okay. I don't say that to her. No, what do I say? I say, listen, if you step there, you die. That's how this works. And if you step there, death happens. Like, the, the inevitable happens. I just simply say that. There's rules to the road, right? Like, people don't go, oh, there's a little kid. I should probably avoid that, right? No, there's rules and ways that we know for life and death. I know that's simple, but it really does get the point across, doesn't it? We want to be protected by our Heavenly Father, but more importantly, our Heavenly Father wants to protect us from the destructiveness of sin, our own sin and the sin of those around us. Not just for eternity, but right now. He wants to do that now. And there's a few questions that we all have to answer. Whether you know that these are questions that you have to answer or not, in life you will be faced with this at one time or another, or you've already been faced with them, and you are unconsciously or subconsciously dealing with them. Some of you are consciously dealing with them, but some are not. And they're questions like, how do you deal with your pain? When something really bad happens to you, what do you run to? When you're fearful, what's your response? Is it anxiety? Is it pills? Is it numbing out? What do you do with suffering? How do you handle that one? You run away from it, pretend it doesn't exist. We all have different worldviews, whether we are aware of them or not. Where we grew up, our family of origin, all this stuff plays into how we think. And Jesus is constantly wanting to get into that space to say, I will help you with your fear. I will help you with your pain. I will help you with your suffering. But it takes our acknowledgement of his power and his authority and who he is. Now, if, if you've experienced freedom in adulthood, I think you're probably familiar with the reality that you can self-destruct pretty easily. Have you realized this yet? You can do things uh, that you just feel like doing and quickly your life starts to fall apart. And there's many people that go that route, right? How do you deal with all this? Well, I just do what I feel. Uh, they don't run, many people don't run to Jesus. They will run to substances or numbing out or Netflix binges, uh, things to deal with their life, but we all know that the results are like terrible. The results do not give what they promise at first. And it's really sad to see at the present moment that we see our freedom to do whatever we want as liberation, when in reality, it's just enslaving us to addictive behaviors that are killing us slowly. Isn't that interesting, the world we live in now? And to be honest, the group of people that I see struggling the most, Christian or non-Christian, the group of people that I see struggling with this the most, unknowingly most of the time, are, are those who have enough awareness and self-control and discipline to live a comfortable life, to get a good job, to find some stability financially, only to spend their lives 
wasting away, not feeling like a need for a Savior. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Just, take, just go with me for a second. A lot of people that have enough awareness, enough self-control to not get pulled over when you're drinking and driving, enough discipline to keep your job, enough to live a comfortable life and keep uh, a stable relationship of some sort, live in this middle ground where they spend their lives wasting away, never feeling a real need for a savior. It's a major problem. It really is. And I, may I suggest that it is the biggest obstacle for most of us sharing our faith with Jesus and people responding. It's a problem because many of our friends, many of us in this room, don't often feel a need for a Savior. We don't feel like we need to be saved. They still do, but they don't feel like they do, which makes our job just so much harder. And this is totally exacerbated by the current time belt that we exist on. We have so many things that keep us comfortable, don't we? So many things to distract us. Now, listen, I am all for comfortable things. I love slippers like anybody else. I love it. Like, I love comfort. I love all the, like, all the stuff. I love being distracted. Like, it's my favorite thing in the world. I love being distracted. But it really doesn't serve me well in this life, right? There's so many things pulling for our soul's attention and its true need. So what often happens in these situations is we all turn to something that some have called functional saviors. We look for these functional saviors. Now, I'll explain what that is in a second, but functional saviors are like termites, we don't think that we have them, but there's a chance that we do, and we're plagued with them, right? You hope that you don't have functional saviors, but there's a chance you might have them. And functional saviors are a different form of idolatry, and idolatry, as we all know, has been a problem with human nature for a very long time, since the beginning of Scripture, since the beginning of time. In our hearts, we have probably unwittingly honored more idols than we would ever dare think about. We don't mean to, but that happens. Nowadays, idols take this very ordinary day-to-day -day things that can go unnoticed by a lot of us in our day-to-day -day actions and desires. So here's what I want to do really quick. I want to go through seven, yes, you heard me, seven functional saviors that we see in our culture and time today. It will be quick, but I encourage you to just press in. If you want to take notes, it'll be on the screen. But these are seven functional saviors that take the place of Jesus or that take the place of Jesus' power and authority in our life that we see on a pretty daily basis. First is our own desires. This is one of the most dangerous and honestly cunning functional saviors, um, and, and, and it's us. It's when we take our satisfaction and our self-interest and we put a premium on them to satisfy ourselves at any cost, even if it's against God, or even if it oppresses other. So that idea that what you need, you are your own savior, you're your own functional savior. And by the way, that's a terrible way to live. How much stress, like to figure out the whole world? I can't do that, like it's overwhelming. But many people, unwittingly or knowingly, they become their own functional savior. The, sex, the second functional savior we see is money. I love money, there's nothing wrong with money. Like if you wanna give me some, I'll totally take it. It's not a big deal. Like, nobody's going to be like, oh, I can't use 20 bucks. You'll be fine with, like, people love money. But money and the view of it can get us in trouble. When we value it too much or too little, we lose a balanced view towards money, and it can become an idol in our life. And it becomes something that we count on. Instead of trusting Jesus for saving and rescuing, we say, I've got 50K in the bank. I'll be fine. Like, I mean, I know that Jesus is good, but I have money, so I'm okay, Right? It's a functional savior. It takes the place of Jesus. Thirdly, career. 
We're in this day and age, we all know it. We all want to make a name for ourselves, right? And I want to be really clear. Jesus is all about legacy and influence. He loves that you want to leave a legacy and, and influence people for his glory, if that is your desire. Not just for yourself, but for his glory. He loves that. But that's not the main point of your life. It's not about what you do. It's about who you become. Having a legacy and an influence is something, it's a byproduct of someone who's lived a full, good life with Jesus, who becomes a full, as we would call it, disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. Your career cannot and sometimes can become a functional savior. You use that for your self-worth, how people know you, your identity. It can become a functional savior. Fourthly, if those first three weren't convicting, the next four will be, I promise. Uh, amusement. Amusement is one. And obviously this is pretty easy to see with social media, video games, all other kinds of applications everywhere at the touch of a fingertip. Uh, we often get distracted by these, and these can get in the way of us and God. It most commonly manifests itself in the sense that we prioritize this idea of amusement over God and other. That's often how it prioritizes. I don't need to pray. I just need to get, I just need, I have this certain amount of social media hits I need to get today, right? Like, we just end up being distracted. So that becomes a functional savior, distraction or amusement over God. Fifth, uh, actually religion can become a functional savior. Now hear me out on this. Christianity and Christ are two completely different things. When ministry and doctrine and creeds cause us to do anything that is not honoring to God, and is not showing love and compassion to other people. We have now, unfortunately, used religion as a functional savior to give us false hope. Now, I know this is crazy, but this happens more often than you would think. That we feel safe and secure in a religion, and we're missing Jesus completely. Sixthly, uh, the sixth functional savior. Uh, relationships and connections. Uh, here's a question to ask yourself. Who are the first people that you run to when you have a really big problem? Is it your spouse? Is it your friends? Is it your parents? Is it a mentor? Now, whoever they are, God can and will use them as a channel of his guidance and blessing, but that is all they will ever be. And I mean that in the sense that they cannot save you or rescue you. As a dad, I would love to tell my children, I can protect you from all the pain and all the suffering. I can absorb your sin and I can release blessing and I'm going to make it all fine for you. I wish I could do that. I cannot do that. The only thing I can do is point my kids in the direction of Jesus who can do all that for them. I have to sit with them and say, listen, I struggle too. Daddy is actually a jerk sometimes too. Ask, don't, tell, don't say it. My daughter's in the front row. I can be so rude. I can be so lame. Daddy's working on his anger too. You want to work with me? Let's pray together. Like, this is all I can do, right? Because I can't rescue and save their soul. Only Jesus can. Seventh, and this has just been all of a sudden uh, just over the top, but opinions. Now opinions have become people's functional saviors. And let me explain what I mean. Too often we try to protect our own opinions or those that agree with our opinions at the expense of two things. One, growing spiritually, and two, at the expense of relationship with other people. You are not your opinions. Can I just share that with you? You are, not, you are so much better than your opinions. You're fuller than your opinions. You're a child of God regardless of your political, social, or economical opinions. 
This week I was faced with this, and it was so frustrating when people were prioritizing an opinion on a matter over relationship with me. And I know this person so well. And the opinion became priority over the relationship. I was just like, this is so sad to me. It's hard when this happens, right? Because you want to love people well, but when your opinions become your functional savior, you will do things that you might not even intend to. And honestly, a lot of the times regret. So the reality is we need a savior that is capable of handling all of our life, all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our confusion. And most of us in this room have an answer to all of this. And that's the powerful work of Jesus on the cross, his death and his resurrection, right? We have that. It's the power of his Holy Spirit every day that gives you grace each day to become more like Jesus. You have a firm foundation in him. But the question becomes, Matthew 28, what about our friends? What about our family? Or the people that you're going to go see this weekend on the mountain? What about them? What do they do with all their problems if they don't know Jesus? How do they process this crazy world? Life is not easy. Anyone else? Like, if your life's great, please let me know. Because I want to say, great, it's going to get hard soon. Let me rejoice with the pain that's coming. Life is challenging. And we don't shy away from that. But we embrace it as Jesus called us to with him at our side. These functional saviors will eventually break down in your life or in your friends or your family's life leaving you feeling hopeless, depressed, and usually aimless. That's usually what happens. And you and I have this responsibility to Jesus and the people in our lives to help them see that he is good. As we talked about last week, uh, this is a process. The journey to faith is a process. It's a journey for each person. Each person is drastically different. Their story is different. So it takes time. But the reality is you and I, we really do, biblically have a responsibility for helping others experience, taste, and see that he is good. So the question becomes today, what do we do? What do we do? Like Jesus asked us to do this. This is hard. We can see that. We have our own sin nature. We have this thing going on in us all the time where we want to rescue ourselves or we want functional saviors to rescue us kind of, but not too much. How do we honor this responsibility to teach them to faithfully follow all that he commanded us? How are we supposed to live these types of lives of people who are filled with the gospel? How does that actually happen? May I just humbly suggest that it is by becoming more like Jesus through the spiritual discipline of witnessing. I think the answer is becoming more like Jesus through the spiritual discipline of witnessing. There is a spiritual discipline of witnessing. And spiritual discipline, Douglas Rumford says this. This helps give us a little bit more clarity on what we're talking about today. Spiritual discipline then is developing soul reflexes. I would encourage you to write that down. Soul reflexes. Great response. I'll tell you more about it in a second. So that we know how to live. We discipline ourselves to develop soul memory in normal times so that we'll be equipped for the times of high demand or deep crisis. If you are a person who is an athlete, obviously looking at me, you can tell I'm not. I'm not an athlete. And some of you are athletes, and some of you are trained to have a certain amount of time every single day to be disciplined to build muscle and then muscle memory so that you can do exactly what you're supposed to do at the exact moment you need to do it. Same thing with you and I in our faith. Spiritual disciplines give us the soul reflexes, the muscle memory, so to speak, the soul memory to do the right thing on the moment that it comes up that we need to do it, to respond in graciousness with those people who want us to feel and absorb their opinions or not being kind, right? Like, how do we actually do this? We do this by spiritual disciplines. 
So if you're not, if you're new to this, which I know you're not, I just want to clarify. To witness simply means to model by telling people of the difference Jesus has made in your life. It's modeling and it's telling. It's living it and it's talking about it. In one sense, that's it. So let me ask you, do you know how, do you and I know how to tell everybody around us about the difference Jesus has made in our lives? Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. Think about in a car accident. If you're a witness to a car accident, what happens? It's your job to just like tell exactly what happened. And based upon sometimes what you say or don't say will lead judges or different people in authority to make different decisions. We are witnesses and we tell people what's happened. Simply, we don't over-exaggerate. We don't under-exaggerate. We say what we saw and heard and experienced. A witness tells the story of what happened to them. Now, anyone who follows Jesus has a story to tell. And no story is boring. If you're the person that was like, I grew up in a Christian home, then I was saved, and then like I didn't go crazy on drugs, and I didn't drink that much, and like I didn't do anything in college, and I was a virgin when I got married, and all this stuff, my life's pretty boring, not a great testimony. Like, no, your, your life is beautiful. And by the way, you have so much more than these like marked moments. You are a child of God that has God pulsing through your body. You've been set free, released, redeemed, forgiven. You have so much of a story to offer. One of my favorite things about sitting down and talking with people is to realize that each person has the most incredible film series in their life. Like any of you could make an incredibly interesting film about your life. Multiple films about your life. Like more than Harry Potter, not even a joke. Like you could do that. And so many people have these, like as they dig into it and as they talk about it and as they just share example by example, you see the beauty of God. All disciples have stories, every single one of us, of God's work in your life. And it's meant, those stories are meant to help set other people free. You don't have to do the work. Did God move in your life? Tell somebody about it. Were you blessed in a crazy way that you couldn't expect that is not unexplained? Tell someone about it. Let the Spirit do the work of applying and moving and helping. Sharing this good news requires no strategy or program, although we can have some, like Alpha, It depends on responding to the Spirit's nudge to open your mouth this week and your heart for the sake of other people when he nudges you to do it. A great example that you and I have in the scriptures is Paul. Uh, In Acts 17, there's this beautiful passage of how he's sharing the gospel in all these different spaces. And Paul was a great example because in each place, in each city he went, he actually shared his life and story about Jesus completely differently than the, than the last. And let me give you an example. When he was in Athens, he argued with Greeks and he quoted philosophers and he used apologetics to present the good news of Jesus because that was the context. That was a value to the people that he was talking to. So that's how he shared his faith there. When he went to Corinth, he started to live in community with Priscilla and Aquila because community mattered. And he realized that if I'm going to share my faith, I have to live in community with these people. So he started a church and had a space where they could get together on a regular basis and do life and share what God did. Then he went to Rome. He spent two years in a house that he rented. And he just opened his doors and said, come, talk to me. Come and see what Jesus is all about. He had more of an open door policy in that space. Then he went to Jerusalem. And he told his story about conversion. He went on trial before Felix. And he defended himself. And he gave an account of his belief in the resurrection of the dead of Jesus. And he was suited at every moment 
to say what the Spirit had asked him to say. He didn't have a formula. He just sat in front of the person and applied the context and shared his story. He had a desire to share this with other people. He knew that it wasn't up to him to convert anyone. And may I just remind you, it is not your job to get people into heaven. Our job is to faithfully share the stories of God, of God and how he's worked in our life with other people as it comes up. Sometimes we set up those meetings and sometimes those meetings happen. Remember 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, speaking of salvation, but God made it grow. Many of us are just going to be planting seeds everywhere. Some of you are called to water. You're not just like that initial conversation. You're called to sit with somebody week after week after week and go through the process, right? Answer the hard questions or point them to people that can help answer the questions. But the point is, whether you plant or whether you water, God's the one that does the work. It's not on you. And I don't know about you, but that is so relieving to me. I have enough stuff going on. Like, can't worry about your soul. Can barely keep mine in check, right? We have a lot going on. And my goodness, what a gift that the Holy Spirit gives us his help. The litmus test for a witness is not to sim- the ability to simply explain the good news. It is the way you live the good news. What you say and how you live are the biggest witness of your life. If you're full of smiles today and you're just worshiping God and you're so happy and everybody that you talk to you're praying with, you're encouraging, you're speaking prophetically over this person, you're just like amped on Jesus and then you go to a restaurant after this, someone messes up your order and you rip that person's head off because how could they? You should honestly pause and if you're with that person, make them pause and ask, are you really living this? Do you believe this? Because the breakdown from here to there, that's a pretty major soul issue. You might not think so, but it is. Because how we live and treat those who God would call lovely and pure and beautiful, that matters to God, and it matters to how we live. Now, I know you might say that's a silly example, but how we respond is an indicator of how much this gospel is in us and how we live it out. It's precisely in the very mundane moments of our ordinary life when who you really are and what you believe are revealed. The mundane moments every day That's who you really are. And that's with with what you really believe. That's where it comes out. That's the space or the platform. Uh, Rebecca Manley Pippert says this. I've never read anything from her but this quote, but I liked it, so we're, we're going to read it. But it's very helpful. Our communication of the gospel depends not on human strategies or well polished techniques or even brilliant reasoned arguments, but on divine initiative. It is the hidden work of the Holy Spirit that gives our words meaning and power and that produces changed hearts. We don't have to do the heavy lifting. This week, be present to the Holy Spirit and when he nudges you to have a conversation, simply obey. That doesn't mean you have to go up and be like, hey, just want you to know, I was talking to God over there, kind of in the spirit realm, just wanted to say I'm supposed to talk to you. What's going on? Like, that's gonna kill it. Don't do that. Like, just, hey, my name is... X, what's your name? Like, introduce yourself like a normal human. Nobody, like, start somewhere, right? And I know that's silly to say, but you would have no idea how many people do this stuff, right? So we have to be honest, like, be present to the Holy Spirit. Be a, just be a normal human and love people really well. Loving biblically, and I say this, I think, every single time that I talk in any space, is to will the good of the other. Because I need to remember that every day, that love doesn't mean giving me what I need. It means looking at the other person and say, how can I live my life to give them what they need? 
That's biblical love. I'm going to close with this story, but before we do, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, and make it your ambition, and make, make it a really big priority in your life, to lead a quiet life. I would argue like physically and over any internet space, lead a quiet life, that you should mind your own business. I love the Bible sometimes, like, hey, bro, mind your own business, and work with your hands, just as we told you. And this is the line I just want to highlight today. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Question for you to reflect upon this week. Does your life win the respect of outsiders? Are you such a person in your workspace or in your home? I mean, so we have many places today that we can like live this out. Are you a person that is living that out in your daily life? And this isn't like a big burden to put upon you. It's a reflection question for you to check in with yourself. Where are you? Like, is this something that's a priority to you? Or if not, why not? Time to wake up and say, Jesus, what are you saying to me? We all have a responsibility to share the good news of what Jesus did in our life for other people's sake. That's the point. And we all have an opportunity. And now, many of you in this room have been impacted or changed by someone doing that very thing. Someone told you about the, the difference Jesus made in their life. Remember, as we opened up, spiritual formation is about being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. And so today we want to share a story with that. But I'm not going to share because uh, I've talked enough already. And uh, for this moment, um, I want to invite someone in our community who has a great story to share, but also someone in, in our community who has been changed by this very thing, by people being faithful to share the gospel with her and for her life to be changed drastically because of it. And we love her and we're so thankful for her. So would you please welcome from our team, Lauren Canales. Come on up. Come share. Here you go. Awesome. Hey guys, it's me again. <laughs> um, I told the last gathering that I had my Sunday diet of only coffee for breakfast this morning. So if I'm a little shaky, I'm not nervous, okay? It's the caffeine talking. Um, I'm really grateful to stand up here and share with you guys just a little bit of my story. Uh, some of you may know parts of it, but um, it's really a testament to God's faithfulness. Um, I want to start out by sharing that before I even get started, I love my family. We stand today in a much healthier spot than we did back when I was a kid. Both my parents have come so far um, and we get along great. Uh, but sadly, it was not always that way. In fact, according to uh, the way it looks on paper and the way my childhood unfolded, there was such a little chance of me actually becoming a Jesus follower. I wasn't raised with parents who loved God or believed in him. Uh, I didn't go to church. And though there was a lot of trauma involved in my childhood, the whole thing undoubtedly had the fingerprint of Jesus all over it. To share with you some background, uh, I was born and raised in Southern California. Yes, you heard me right, I'm a transplant. I promise I'm not trying to ruin your economy and your housing market. I am in the same boat as you. I am too young to afford a house anyway. Um, so just getting that out of the way. Um, but growing up, my home was honestly one of chaos and dysfunction. The walls uh, seemed to be built upon foundations of anger and it operated much of the time with a heart of anxiety. 
Our house was an honest health risk, as my parents did not clean and oftentimes hoarded junk upon every surface possible. My mom, unknowingly to me when I was a child, struggled with a meth addiction up until I was 18 years old. This caused all sorts of problems, as I'm sure you can imagine, from knowing if me and my sisters would be picked up from school that day, or if my mom would show up to my talent shows and school functions, and constantly wondering if when I got home, would I face the mom who I knew she was at her core, who was loving and funny and fun to be around, or, on the other hand, would I be faced with hurtful words being thrown at me as I walked in the door? Or as I walked home from school, would I hear the echoing booms of my parents fighting again uh, throughout the neighborhood? And would I have to run inside and close the doors and windows so the neighbors wouldn't call the police again? I was left thinking much of my childhood that I was too much of a burden. I was too much to pay for and I cost too much of my parents' time to show up for me. The absence of hope was deafening, and I often, I often wondered, as a small girl, if it was easier to just exit myself completely from the equation. That if I was not truly loved by my own parents, what was the point? After all, when an eight-year-old is trying to comfort her broken mom and is shoved out of the room and told she's not wanted, what else is she to believe about herself? Those words of, quote, I do not want you, shaped my identity as a child. Somehow, though, in the midst of all of the mess of my parents borderline divorcing countless times and the chaos that happened at home, there were small moments where God really showed up. Between neighbors and friends throughout my childhood, I was exposed to the idea of there maybe being a God. Throughout uh, the occasional church invites to things like Sunday school or Awanas and youth events, maybe there was a God, I often thought. But if he was anything like my parents, I did not believe that he could love me. However, when I was 13 years old, I began to experience the gospel for the first time. And if you ever doubted if youth ministry works, I am here to tell you right now I am a product of that. And it works and it matters and we've been pushing it for Riverbend and we've been going for almost a month now and it is going to be the fruit of the next generation. So just wanted to give a little disclaimer for that. But when I was 13, I began to experience the gospel for the first time. And this is when the Lord began to work in the lives of the faithful leaders within a youth group I began to attend regularly. I grew up such, I grew such a desire to understand this hope that they had and know the true joy that echoed through their hearts and into mine. So after being that youth kid who asked every question my brain could think of, my moment of understanding and embracing of the gospel came to fruition, and I was honestly a product of their faithful outpouring of prayer. The truth of Jesus' love for me, what he did on the cross, and the victory of the resurrection planted hope within a heart that was so desperate to know that she was loved. I recognized that the hope people can have is real. I began to anchor myself in scripture and seek his word diligently. And here we are, 12 years later. I'm standing here today only because of the faithfulness of God and the reality of the gospel. 
Though so much of my foundation was set to make me fail, I know that the vibrancy of the gospel filled every crack within my soul, and I am whole because of Jesus. He loves us, and he loves you. And I know for a fact that all of you hold a story within your heart, even as Brooke shared. And if you are carrying around the words that were spoken over you, maybe as a child or more recently, lies that the enemy has used for evil in your life, I am telling you right now that God wants to use that for good. I believe that the power of Jesus' love for you can reshape your life. It can reinstate your worth as a daughter or son. And that invitation is open to you today. So thank you guys for listening. I'm so grateful to be able to share. And that's a little bit about me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Lauren, thank you for your story. And we just want to, as a church and a community, and I just want to be clear that we see God's hand on your life and the fruit of that. And you and Danny are such a blessing to our community. We love you guys. You're not allowed to move anywhere. Um, it's prophetic. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, at this moment, uh, we could end in a thousand different ways, right? But the point is that your story matters. Sharing your story matters. What Lauren just did was shared the gospel with you. Now, we can get all confused about that, but she was sharing the good news of Jesus about her life with people. And you can do that in any space. And it can be in a setting like this, or it can be over coffee this week, or over a good meal. I would encourage a good meal, but whatever. Any space is okay. And the point is, this whole weird thing that I think culturally, especially Christian culture, we get built up or distracted by with this idea that it's so intense. How am I going to share my faith? Just share the good news of Jesus. How's God worked in your life? If you know that somebody's like really triggered by the word God or Jesus, leave a couple of those words out at first. Share that, that there has just been the force that you believe in that's been like really blessing your life in the universe. So happens to be God, right? Like... <laughs> Be clear about it in the end, but you can start in all sorts of ways. If you want some pointers or tips, come talk to me. I've, I've had all sorts of weird beginnings. But the point is just share, share God's faithfulness with other people this week. Let's stand. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. And what I'd like to do to just end today, um, I don't know about you, but I always love, 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 love being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. I love being spoken to. I love just experiencing the presence of God. And sometimes that might be in a really physical way. And sometimes that might just be in experiencing peace or joy or life. And all we simply want to do today is just make space to respond. And so we're going to sing in just a minute. And then we're going to uh, actually take the bread and the cup in a couple moments. But before we do that, I just want us to take a second to do something a little different today. Uh, there's people on your right and your left. You might know them, you might not, and that's okay. But what I'd like us to do, we're gonna take turns. We'll start with our right, then we'll go to our left. I just want you to take a second to pray blessing and to pray peace. Maybe even to listen to the Spirit specifically and see if there's anything that He wants to maybe pray over them. And would you just, even out loud together, we'll do this right now, uh, just pray for that person. You don't have to know their name. God can work all that out. Uh, but just to pray blessing and peace and hope and life over the people to your right. Can we do that together? You guys okay with that? We're going anyway. So uh, anybody that's on your right, let's just begin to pray. So Holy Spirit, we invite you right now. Would you come and fuel our prayers? And would you just begin out loud even if you want? Begin to pray for the person on your right. If you know them, use their name. 
particular situation. Pray over it. that up here or right in the back and go grab that during this next song and then after this song